I got a lot I want to get through today, and I know we've got, everybody's got plans this afternoon, so we want to keep things moving right along. I am very grateful for the testimony that we heard. Scott's always willing to share, and if you get a chance to talk to him, visit about some of the stuff he's been through. It's, been in, it's a great story, but you know, the thing is, is that we've got to understand is that we serve a good God. You guys with me? We serve a good God. The definition of goodness is in His character. Because there is no good if there is no God, because there's no standard to apply to it. God is the standard of which we apply. And with that thought in mind, we have to understand something. Is that as we're looking at this new series, an identity crisis that we are having in the body of Christ today, it is because we don't know who we are. And on top of that, we don't know whose we are. To whom do we belong? And with those understandings, when you finally, it clicks in your head, you begin to act differently. You think differently. You talk differently. It is kind of like when you wake up in the morning, you're on mission. I have to get this done today. What happens, especially in America, and you don't see this as much in third world type countries and struggling because they are hand to mouth every day, right? Only you've seen it. I mean, we go down to El Salvador and you guys have been there so many times and you grew up there, of course. And it's completely different because every day they have to go make something happen in order to eat, in order to survive. What do we got to do to eat? Open the fridge. How many of y'all's air conditioner isn't keeping up this week? It's a problem. That is not the will of God. You go down there, there's no air conditioning. In fact, let me tell you a funny story. The first time we went down there, we set up this meeting. So we're, we rough it when we go to El Salvador. You know, we stay in really rough places like the Crown Plaza. And uh, that was a joke. And uh, it's a beautiful hotel and stuff. But they learned years ago it's better to spend a few dollars more to stay in a nice place that has clean facilities and water and all of that versus the uh, food poisoning and all the other stuff that goes along with it. Yeah, and the ER's right there, you know, all that good stuff. So... We had, they, Jim had set this meeting up because they were trying to get these buildings bought or attained to build schools and stuff down there in District Italia. And so we're staying there, and the pastor and his son, we put them up in the room because we had a meeting at the hotel very early the next morning. Now, without thinking, we put them in this nice hotel room. Well, you know what comes in these nice hotel rooms? Air conditioning. You know what they don't have? Air conditioning. You know what we didn't do? Teach them how to work the air conditioning. Because they put the card in, the air conditioner kicks on. And I'm up early, and I, I know Jim's usually up early, and I'm sitting down in the, uh, down, I come downstairs at like 6 o'clock, 6.15, something like that, in the morning, because I didn't want to sit in the room, because the uh, translator was staying with me, and he was still asleep. So I go downstairs, and there's Pastor Mario and Nino, and all of them sitting there, suit and tie, dressed up, ready to go. I'm like, man, they are just really after it. Well, that's not exactly true. What happened was, is they didn't know how to work the air conditioning that was running on full blast, and they nearly froze to death. So they slept in the same bed, hovered together to stay warm, and they couldn't get out of that room fast enough the next morning. Little things you don't think about. I mean, it was no different when it was in Celsius. How many of you guys can, like, calculate Celsius to Fahrenheit in your head? Yeah, me neither. So I went into the room the first day, was there by myself, Sergio, the translator's coming the next day. I just, I kept turning it down until it got to a level that I felt good at it. I didn't know what it was doing and stuff, and so Sergio gets there the next night, and I slept like a baby. I mean, you could see my breath. You could hang meat in this room if you had to. It was wonderful. And Sergio looked at me the next morning. He says, hey, uh, mind if I turn that up a little bit? He's from Honduras, and he was a little chilly. And I was like, sure. And he's like, I said, I didn't know how to read the numbers. He's like, well, if you hit this button, it flips it to Fahrenheit. I was like, oh, 50 degrees. 
that hotel didn't make money on me that week. So, But that's the thing. Like, we are so spoiled here that we take those things for granted. And the identity of who we are as a born-again believer should exude in every aspect of our life. Now, we looked at this last week. Let's look at this definition of identity. Because there's three parts to this. The collective aspect or the set of characteristics by which a thing is definitively recognizable or known. The set of behavioral or personal characteristics by which an individual is recognizable as a member of a group. Or the quality or condition of being the same as something else. When we look at identity, what we're trying to establish is can we look at something and see who they belong to? So, let me ask you this. You ever go somewhere in the backwoods and you see a bunch of guys that are in like jeans and kind of a, looks like a denim shirt of some sort and they got overalls on and they got long beards and they wear funny hats? What are they? They're the Amish, right? Or the Mennonites, whichever way you want to go. But I mean, it's very obvious the second you see them. You ever gone someplace and you see a bunch of old ladies sitting at a restaurant with red hats on? It's an identifying marker. You know what it is. You see, when we come to the body of Christ, we've got to ask the question, what does a Christian look like? What do they talk like? What do they sound like? How does one act in every aspect of life? And the answer to that really is simple, but we have made it complex. Because what we have done is added a bunch of intricacies to this, and frankly, what it comes down to, the term Christian means to be like Christ. Now remember what I told you, the term Christian is really only in the Bible in the New Testament three times. Twice in the book of Acts and once in 1 Peter. This was not a term of endearment. The followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, this is everybody that came even after Jesus, were known as followers of the way. It was a sect of Judaism. Ones who had received Messiah. The term Christian was put on them because they, there was something unique about them and they had to kind of identify them as somehow. So, you know, there were several sects. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Essenes. You had the Samaritans. You had all of these Itans, Okay. All of these different things out there. This was just one more sect. But these guys were causing problems. And they were causing problems in the way that they lived and the way that they acted. The way they lived is they lived with the heart for someone else. They also acted on mission from God every single day. Read the book of Acts. Every day they woke up, they were on mission from God. Now compare that to how we do. Every day we wake up, we just try to get to the next day. The fact that we identify ourselves with mental illness and anxiety and depression, is that who we are? And the answer is no. And then the greater question is, why are we so depressed? Because you don't have these problems for countries that don't have what we have. We got it good. We should be excited. We should be thankful every day. Every day we wake up is an opportunity. And so when we jump into this, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to begin to break down Scripture a little bit today as we drill deeper. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, there is a caveat in here, and it is the word if. If you are in Christ, then you are not what you were. God did not take an old thing and just spruce it up. He took a dead thing and gave it life. And we have to begin to understand that. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That means that whatever happened prior to that moment is dead and gone. That is not who you are. It is not what you identify as. Everything has become new. Not some things, all things. Now, here's the thing. If this is true and God has made me brand new in every way, then why is it the way that I act, 
the way that I talk and the way that I live my life tries to disprove that verse. Because we try hard. We try to push the envelope as far as we can to get as much like the world as we can without crossing some imaginary boundary that is out there. We don't want to be separated. We want to be as much like them as we can to have the nicety and the comfort to do what we want, when we want, how we want. But we do want a little Jesus mixed in there so that we at least feel good about ourselves. If I were to ask you the number one question, as I did youth ministry for a long time, the number one question that I would get asked by teenagers, mainly teenage boys, what do you think that question would be? This is the interactive portion of the program. Anybody? Take a guess. It's a toughie. I told you teenage boys, kind of a giveaway. All right, let me help you out. You almost went to public school. It's how far can I go with my girlfriend before it's too far? It's number one question. Got asked all the time. Now, how does one respond to that? In one sense, you say, well, I mean, she's your sister in Christ, so whatever you'd be willing to do with your sister, go nuts. You got to be careful with that anymore, but back then, the truth is, it's not a matter of how far you can go, it's a heart problem. Because what they just told me is, I don't want to fully sin, I just want to kind of get close to it, and I don't want to cross over. Now we've talked about this before, but remember what the Pharisees did? I say the Pharisees, but this came after the time of Ezra, after they came back, after they had been in captivity, they get the temple rebuilt, they created what they called fence laws. And this is what Jesus was constantly addressing. He wasn't dealing with the Mosaic Covenant, he was dealing with these fence laws. And these fence laws were essentially, if this is the commandment, we don't want to break. It's right here. We're going to create a fence of commandments all the way out here, so that you have to jump over several of them before you ever break the biggie. Because if you break the biggies, that's what sends us into captivity. And they want to avoid that. So they created all these man-made laws and, and requirements. And Jesus is constantly addressing that. But you know, we talk about it like teenagers, but truth be told, we do the same thing. We just justify it. We say, how much like the world can I live and still be considered a Christian? It's my actions and my speech. We've got to begin to define it. So let's go over to Romans chapter 7. We're going to read a little bit today. We're just kind of building a base for this understanding. But as we saw in the last series, we know what we should be doing, right? We should be teaching, preaching, healing, and being willing to lay down our lives, right? Here we go, Romans 7, verse 1. Or do you not know? Now, obviously, we're starting in the middle of a thought, okay? Brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, so that would be who? It would be the Jews, right? Gentiles really didn't know the law. That the law has dominion over man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. Now understand the context of this. We're dealing with divorce. They could not abstractly divorce. It was going on. Moses put a provision in there dealing with infidelity, but that was it. As long as that man was alive, you were bound to him, no questions asked. Okay. Once that man died, you were now released. So then, if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Now, let's stop. In order to bear fruit, what must one do? 
it has to die. Seed does not bear fruit until that seed has died in the ground and it brings new life. We have become dead to the law through what? The death of Jesus. It was his body. That we might be married to another. We're not married to the law. We're now married to him known as what? The bride of Christ. You guys see how this is coming together? Why? So we could bear fruit. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear the fruit of death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness until the law said, you should not covet. But sin, taking every opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Why is it holy? Because at the death of that brought the newness of life through Jesus. Verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is to present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For that good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, I know it sounds like Paul had a stroke here as he was writing this, but bear with me a minute. I find then a law that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but when the flesh, uh, with the flesh the law of sin. Now, let's go back. Let's look at this a little deeper here. What is going on? He talks about two people, warring members. You've got the inward man, you've got the outward man. The inward man has desires and passions. And when he does what God wants, that's what, that's what he wants to do, because that is who he is. But that outward man tends to put up a fight. And he's showing us a distinction here between the inner man that God has created in his image and this outward man who still wants to do the things of this world. Because imagine this, if Jesus were here with us every single day, your desire to push the boundaries would be completely wiped out. They would not be existent. In the presence of God, there is no way you would desire to do those things, to say those things, to be a part of those things, because all you would care about is the presence of God. What do you think we're going to be doing in heaven? You know, I've had people say, man, I think heaven's going to be boring. Are you kidding me? We don't, we don't even understand we won't care about anything else. The disciples cared about nothing. They just they wanted Jesus in their life. We need to be that same way. How do we live in the presence of God? We are the presence of God. We are the temple with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. But yet we want to push the envelope. 
We want to push it as far as we can. We're, we'll justify a bunch of behaviors just to make ourselves feel good. Oh, it's okay. I can do this. It's not a sin. I can do this. I can say that. I can do these things. Whatever. It's okay. Don't be legalistic. You hear that all the time. So, as we're getting into this, I'm going to lay a foundation of the understanding of salvation briefly today. For some of you, this is going to be a repeat. Some of you, this may be new information. Regardless, it's good because we need to understand this because we can't move forward to what our identity truly is until we understand these three things. And so, there are three levels of salvation. Did you know that? Because if you didn't, today's your day. Justification, sanctification, glorification. How we say it is I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Now I know some of you have heard this before, but let's break these words down. The term justification, what does it mean? It is the action of declaring or making righteous in the sight of God. Let me read that again. The action of declaring or making righteous in the sight of God. Now, there's about 80 million Bible verses we could go to. Let's just look at a couple. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. This is Paul interacting with Peter here. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were, with, uh, were of the circumcision. Now, let's stop for a second. Who is James? James is the brother of Jesus. James was the pastor over the church of Jerusalem. So Acts 15, this is kind of the hub of what's going on. There's a debate that's going on. I don't know where this falls in that timeline. But what he just said is that when Peter was around by himself, he ate with the Gentiles. Why is that? Because God had revealed to him, don't call unclean what I have called clean. To a Jewish man, you did not eat with a non-Jew, period. It was against the law. They weren't supposed to do it. So he would do that, but when James sent people to him, he would stay away. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified, there's that word, by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now, do you see what he did there? What did he say? I withstood Peter to his face. That's a really nice way to say, I called him an idiot. He let him have it. But where's the love and mercy? Oh, Peter, you're mistaken. No, Peter knew what he was doing was wrong. He's getting called out by Paul here. You see, we're justified by the works of Christ. Verse 17, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. In, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have become crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Now look what he just said here. 
I, through the law, died that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. I have died. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith for the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. And if we could just think about that for a minute, it would change the way that we act. It would change the way that we talk. We would no longer, as born-again believers, be trying to push the limit and be as much like the world because Jesus died for me, and I died with Him, and He gave His life for me, so I'm going to live my life for Him. Understanding this justification, we'll say it like this, it's just if I had never sinned. Imagine your entire past, completely wiped out, forgot about, no longer held to that standard. God has erased all of it, and now you are in the newness of life. And the beautiful thing is, is because you did nothing to deserve it or earn it, you can do nothing to have it stripped away from you. It wasn't yours to begin with. We're saved by faith, through grace, in Jesus. By grace through faith. I said that backwards. By grace through faith in Christ alone. That is it. Your faith is the mechanism of which your belief and your hope and your trust is in Him. It is a free gift of salvation. It's a beautiful thing. And what do we do? Take it for granted. Every day. We get around people. We talk a certain way. We do certain things. We are more like them then we are like God. And it's just because we're undisciplined. It's because, frankly, we have taken all of this for granted. Just like we do most things. But when you've been radically saved, for those who have an incredibly powerful testimony of what their life was, I mean, I have seen people who God has pulled out of the muck and the mire, drugs, some of them were prostitutes. I mean, I know a lady right now who was a former porn star that's now a minister. That would be awkward leading people to Christ, but whatever, she's doing it. And she'll, she never takes for granted how radically transformed her life was. But those of us who kind of grew up in church, we tend to take things for granted. We'll just live or do or be or whatever. And we'll call anybody that comes against that legalist. So what is justification? It was the moment that Christ died on our behalf and now we are set apart by Him. There's nothing we did to earn it. There's nothing we can do to lose it. It's that simple. But let's look at sanctification because this is the next part of it. Sanctification is the action of making or declaring something holy. When you declare something holy, what have you done? You have set it apart. It is no longer common. It is now sanctified. So in other words, the utensils in the temple were what? They were sanctified. They would have to be cleansed, and they were set apart only for that service. That was it. They had a purpose, and that was the only thing that they were to do. So the action of making and declaring something holy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Those are powerful words. Because basically what? You want to know what the will of God is? Your sanctification. What does that mean? Your body set apart for service for Him. That means what you say should be in honor of Him. And what you do should glorify Him. And if it looks and sounds just like it does, they use the term Gentiles. What do we use? The world. You should begin to question what you're doing. Because sanctification is the process of which we are becoming more like Him in the flesh. We can't get more saved, but our actions and words become more and more like Him. Now let me share a story with you. There was a man that I met when I went to the church in Hastings. I went on staff there, uh, met this guy. He was just a great guy, had lots of questions, very friendly, always the first to help out. If we needed something in the church, he was the first guy there, and it didn't matter what was going on, he was always there. And I met him. Uh, You know, that was the way his name was Greg. It was just the way he was. I didn't know him any other way. And so about a year after I'd been there, Greg and I would go to lunch all the time and just chit-chat, and he'd ask Bible questions and stuff, and just a good guy. One of the guys that uh, his students came to our youth ministry, and I was, it was their parents, and I was talking to him, he was like, man, it's amazing to see what a different Greg is compared to what he was. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, that guy? Oh, that guy. I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, it turns out he was divorced, and I knew that, but the reason he was divorced is because he was an alcoholic who was beating his wife and children. And they finally got to the point they couldn't take it anymore. And when he got saved, he got radically saved. And he gave everything up. And it was just incredible. They were telling me this was not the same man. I only knew him as such. It was powerful. In fact, I remember preaching one time down there. And uh, I got done teaching on something. Because you know, we as parents sometimes need to ask the forgiveness of our children. Because sometimes we overreact. And sometimes we've done things and we've led them astray. Whether it was intentional or unintentional, doesn't matter. We've done it. And so I'm up there. He comes up to me after service. He's like, I've got to call my daughter. They had not talked in years because of what he had done. He called and asked her forgiveness. And within three months had reconciled that relationship because the Holy Spirit got a hold of his heart. He was a changed man. I'll tell you another one. There was a couple that were going to the church when I was growing up. And she, you guys remember the Sandy Patty? Any of you been around for a while? Like that voice? She had that voice. She sounded just an incredible singer super nice her husband was weird but super nice guy like just great people and we were sitting there like they'd always come over to my folks house and we're sitting there eating lunch one day and we get to talking about you know stuff and it turns out both of them at one time were hell's angels i mean i knew i like they like to ride motorcycles but can you imagine sandy patty as a hell's angel that's that's essentially what it was and i'm like you were what like oh yeah we used to be the hell's angels i'm like no way pulling my leg The husband, I could kind of believe. He was weird. But you see, what happens is we become sanctified. And that is a process that goes on every day. And that is where you and I are growing in the Word. That we are becoming more like God every day. And you know what that takes? It takes discipline. 
That's where you and I begin to crucify our flesh because it's got a mind of its own. The things that I want to do, the inward man, is not what it wants to do because sometimes it doesn't want to read its Bible. Sometimes it doesn't want to pray. Sometimes it doesn't want to go to church. Sometimes it wants to say things it ought not say. But I have to crucify that because I have been recreated in the image of God. Let's read one more. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Let's just breathe that in for a moment. It is Father's Day. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. Now think about this. What just said? His bride should be washed with the word and presented before him. This is a Jewish thing that's going on here. I don't have time to go into today. But presented before him what? Holy and blameless. Now, you and I are the bride of Christ. Could we, in clear conscience, say, if my body was presented before the Lord today, it is holy and it is blameless? And I think most of us would say no. I'm not talking about legalism. Doing things just because we have to. I'm talking about doing things because what Christ has done. Not how far can we push it and still not be sinning. Because where's the standard? But what do we do that brings glory to Jesus. You know, Peter talks about another place. He says, be holy because I am holy. What does that mean? It means to be set apart because I am set apart. Be holy, you, in your flesh because I am holy. In other words, be like me. If we're supposed to mimic every part of Christ, then maybe we should start mimicking every part of Christ. The words we say, the actions we take, the compassion that we have, it's all there. Let's look at the last one, the glorification. Glorification is pretty simple. This is what it means, essentially. It's our final classification in the kingdom of God. It's where we are made completely new. Romans chapter 8, verse 30 says, Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, those, these he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35. But some will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one? What you sow is not made alive until, unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. And the one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of earth, made of 
of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruptible incorruptible, and this mortal must put on immortality. What are we talking about? This is the body. Ultimately, we're going to be glorified into what Christ ultimately had us to be. You see, we see this justification where we are saved and set apart. The sanctification as we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, becoming more like Him, becoming disciplined. You know, do you realize that the church today, we as the body of Christ, should have make it a practice to fast? That doesn't bode well. But it should be. Well, Jesus didn't give a direct commandment to fast. Yeah, but He said, when you fast, don't do it like they. In other words, it's implied. When you pray, don't do it like they. When you give, don't do it like they. It was all these things that we do. 2 Timothy 3 says, Yes, verse 12, And all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now let me ask you, if we were to just read that verse and nothing else, what would you expect? That if you desire to live godly, that doesn't mean be born again. That means to live godly. That means there is a standard of how we live our lives. That we live godly, what will you expect? You will suffer persecution. Do we suffer it now? Some. Around the world they do. We do some here. We're not going to compare ours to theirs or anything like that. The bottom line is if you're living holy before God, you can expect people to look at you in weird ways. And you know what? Some of those people are church attenders. Because we get persecuted by believers and sinners alike. Do you know how you avoid persecution by sinners? Sin with them. Be like them. We're to be set apart and holy. We're not to be like them. But yet we try. We push the envelope as far as we can. The words we say. The things we do. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you to the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. What did he just say? Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you By the revelation of Jesus. Your hope is there. This has been given to you. Don't conform yourself to the former lust. But what do we do today? Well, I used to do this, but now I've been born again. But I can still do some of this. I can still say those things, do those things, drink that stuff, whatever. We we, we try so hard to be just like them. But we've been completely transformed. Set apart. Different. No longer the same. He who called us is holy. We should be holy in all of our conduct. So the question comes to be, is that if we were sitting there, and Jesus was with us, and he was standing there and listening to what we were saying, how would we talk? If he was standing there and taking in the actions that we're doing, how would he be pleased? Because literally, that is what is going on. He's with us all the time. And so the question comes back to, is like, well, if he's there, would I do that? Would I say that? And the answer most of the time is no. But we do it now. Because 
the revelation has not sunk in that I serve a holy God. And because of that, I should be holy in all my conduct. Let me read you guys. I'm going to read something down to Revelation. This is going to seem a little weird for a moment, but I want you to get what's happening here. So let's read Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. This is about the church of Smyrna. There's seven churches in the first couple chapters, 2 and 3, in Revelation. And I'm not going to break all of this down, but I want you to understand something that's happening here. It says, verse 8, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. That's Jesus. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. Now that's interesting that he says that. Because he's not comparing them to what they have. He says, you're rich, you don't even know it. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, this is interesting. Because, remember, John is writing this down as he's given it. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's revealing this to John. John's having a vision. He's writing this stuff down. And he's writing to the church of Smyrna, which most of us don't have any idea about. But these seven churches were in the area of modern-day Turkey. It was called uh, Asia back then. And so he says, I know your works, what you're doing. I know the tribulations that you are facing, and I know that you have nothing, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. That's similar to those who, well, you can do this, you can say that, you know, because these guys were living differently. Then he says, don't fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Because the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. He just told them. This is what's going to happen. That you be faithful. Because what's the reality? The spiritual, not the physical. And then he says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes should not be hurt by the second death. So we're dealing with tribulation, poverty. We're dealing with all of the stuff that's going on. Let me explain what's happening. First of all, who is this written to? Church of Smyrna. And then who also is it written to? Whoever has ears, let him hear. I'm not going to look around, but I'm pretty sure we're all there. Let me show you this picture. Okay? These are known as the archway of Smyrna. And in these arches, this is where we lead into a forum. My thing worked, I break it. Oh, I'm going to want that. I put the battery in backwards. Woo! I, yeah, it's, it's good and broke now. Oh, I broke it. I'm going to have to go up there. That's all right. Anyway, every year, they would go into the forums. They would have these... Sometimes they would call them uh, coliseums and stuff. And in Smyrna, it wasn't huge. But this archway uh, was kind of a big deal. Because what they had set up here is that every year, all the residents of Smyrna had to line up and walk through them. And up over here, right in this area here, they would set up a table. And they would have a city official there. And it was basically a guard. And as you walk through, they would have a lamp there burning and a bowl of incense and what they made law is that the emperor would say that every citizen as they would walk through one by one would have to grab a pinch of this incense and sprinkle it over the lamp and burning it say carios diaz which means caesar is lord 
every one of them. And what were you just declaring? Now, what do we do? Because if they refuse, you know what happened? They would be grabbed, taken into the forum, and would be burned at the stake. So the whole thing with lions, all of this stuff. Immediately. So some did it. Now where would we be today? If we were walking through that, how many of us would just be like, you know what? God understands. And I have a family. And I don't want them to live without me. And I don't want them to have to fend for themselves. So he'll understand as I do this. I don't really mean it. Would he? What did he warn them? Tribulation's coming. Be faithful unto death. There's a guy you may have heard of named Polycarp. He's from Smyrna. And at 86 years old, he had to go through that line. And he got up to the line and he basically said, 86 years I've lived with Jesus. I'm ready to go see him. He refused to do it, and they took him in there, and they burned him at the stake. That's persecution, folks. But what are we facing? I'm concerned with how somebody thinks of me, what they'll say. I can just do these things. Guys, we don't even know the half of it. We're to be holy. What is the, what, what is the marker of a disciple of Jesus? It is this set-apartness that we are different. Those men and those women had to make a decision that day. And there isn't anybody in this room who's ever faced that moment. But what if we took that same attitude with the way that we act? Am I declaring allegiance to this world by my words and by my actions? Or am I declaring allegiance to my Heavenly Father who sent His Son for me? We've got to begin to think about this stuff. Because it is so much more then just simply, I can just do what I want. I can be, I'm under grace, not the law. When we don't understand those words. It's time for us as the church to become holy and a set-apart bride of Christ. If every day is an opportunity, then we need to take that opportunity. And we need to be different. Amen? Listen, guys, it's not hard, but we can do that. Now, we're going to do something here. Paralee's getting ready to have surgery. Paralee, would you come up? We're going to pray for her. I'd like everybody who's willing to come up and, and pray with us. They're going to take out a chunk of her gallbladder. Maybe all of it. I don't know. That's all of it? Good. How much does a gallbladder weigh? Uh, I mean, you know, if you, if you need to lose 10 pounds, it weighs 10 pounds. Anyway, never mind. We're just going to lay hands on her. We're going to believe God for His provision, for His healing. So just step right in. We've got all sorts of people. Father, we just thank you for Paralee, and we thank you that your spirit is moving on her right now, and that your goodness and graciousness is falling on her, and I thank you, Lord, that you are healing her from the top of her head to the soles of her feet, that everything comes in line, Lord, and I thank you that you guide the hands of the surgeons, that everything that needs to come and go, and Lord, that all pain and sickness will leave in Jesus' name. We rebuke the enemy in the name of Jesus, that nothing will by no means hurt her. And so, Lord, we thank you for what you have done, the price that you have paid to buy your stripes, we are healed. We stand on your word, and that's why we are laying hands on her, because you said believers lay hands on the sick, and they recover. So, Lord, we're being obedient to your word, and we thank you that you are faithful to it. 
So, Lord, we give you the glory and honor, and we thank you in Jesus' name that she is made whole in every aspect. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God's good. Amen? Guys, have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday.